Well, you've probably had a similar experience. Actually, we probably all have had this experience where you've been hanging out with some friends and eating some food. And while you're eating the meal, one of your friends ends up eating, I don't know, some spinach salad because they're healthy while I'm eating steak. And, um, but they're eating spinach. And what they don't realize is some of the spinach has got caught in between their teeth. And it's awkward. You've probably had that experience and they're talking and they're smiling and they're laughing and there's just this giant piece of spinach stuck in the middle of their teeth. And if you were truly a friend, you would tell them. But quite often we don't because there's, we're embarrassed. We, we tend to think it's because of love that we don't tell them, but no, it's because we're embarrassed and we don't want an awkward moment. Or maybe you've been that person where you've gone about your whole day talking with people, laughing with people, smiling, and you've had this huge piece of spinach within your teeth. And you get home, and you go and you get ready for bed, and you go to the washroom, and you all of a sudden look in the mirror and realize that there's this huge piece of spinach in your teeth. And the first thing that comes to your mind is, why didn't my friends tell me? If they loved me, they would have told me that there was spinach in my teeth. You see, the task of every Christian to other Christians, or the task of the local church, is in a sense to tell one another you have spinach in your teeth. The, Lord, the, the church, the local church, has been given the task to its individual members to graciously, gently, lovingly, and with humility tell their brother or sister that they have some spinach stuck in their teeth. This is what the Bible would describe as biblical church discipline. And this is the seventh mark of a Christ-honoring church, a church that is committed to faithfully practice biblical church discipline. Let me pray for us as we look at this topic. Lord, this is a heavy topic. Many churches don't practice this today anymore, and so many Christians are confused about this subject. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to understand what your Word is saying, and that no matter how difficult this topic may be, that we would submit to your truth because you are wiser than we. And so help us now in this, in Christ's name, amen. Now I want to be upfront from the very get-go in saying that there's probably going to be some holes to my sermon. And what I mean by that is when church discipline is a topic, there's so many scenarios that could cause someone to go, well, what about this situation? And what about this situation? And, and this morning, I don't have the time to address every situation and so there's going to be moments where you're going to think in your head, well, what about this? What about that? And I won't be answering all of those questions this morning. What I want to do is simply give you kind of the biblical landscape on what is church discipline and how it ought to operate in the life of a church. And so I've given you an outline there in your bulletin to help you follow along. Now, it's no secret that you can go to a church all your life and never be taught and never see 
church discipline practice today in our modern world. There are objections to church discipline. And so I want to first this morning look at some of the objections that people have towards the idea of church discipline. And the first objection is this. You'll hear many people say this, Christians as well, aren't Christians not supposed to judge others? And of course, they get this from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, where Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek, see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the problem when people use this passage for Christians not to judge is that the context is referring to a specific kind of judgment. There are different kinds of judgment. Jesus here is confronting judgment that's hypocritical in nature. You see the the small little sin in your brother's eye, but you have a log in your eye and you're not willing to address it. He's confronting hypocrisy. He isn't making a universal statement against all forms of judgment. And the reason we know this is because Jesus actually calls us to judge under circumstances. In fact, if you are human, it is impossible for you to not judge. You always make value judgments. The person you married, you made a value judgment about them and you married them because of it. Matthew 18, 15 to 20, we're not going to turn to look at it just yet, but Jesus commands the church to rightly judge the Christian brother or sister who is unrepentant in sin. In Luke 17, 3 to 4, Jesus also says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a serious issue going on in the church of Corinth. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so Paul writes the church to address this issue. And this is what he says about judging. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, that is the world, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul understands that the church has been given a task to actually judge the church. Now, I didn't unpack the details of these texts, but I'm just showing you that Jesus doesn't condemn all forms of judgment. He condemns hypocritical judging. 
He condemns self-righteous judging. You see, Jesus didn't, didn't condemn the Pharisees primarily for their teaching. He condemned them for placing burdens and requirements upon people's shoulders that they themselves did not care to keep. He condemned them for their hypocrisy. So that's one of the objections that people have in regards to practicing church discipline. How can you practice church discipline if you believe that we aren't called to judge? The second objection is this, and this is a legitimate, serious objection. The abuses of church discipline throughout history. There have been times and still are times where churches and church leaders have practiced church discipline, but not biblically. That is, they've done church discipline in such a way that if Jesus was present, he'd condemn what they were doing. So you think, for example, of the the young teenage girl who, who gets pregnant out of wedlock. And there have been times where churches have taken that young teenage girl and they have shamed her. They brought her before the congregation. We have a sinner in our midst. But the goal of church discipline isn't to shame and belittle. It is to restore. And those leaders who do that, who do those kinds of things, they should be the ones disciplined for their self-righteousness. You see, because of situations like that, churches have often just abandoned the practice altogether. Churches and leaders shouldn't have that kind of authority. But the solution to these abuses of church discipline isn't to abandon the practice of church discipline, but rather to embrace the biblical practice of church discipline. The way to avoid such abuses is to be faithful to what the Bible actually says about the issue. You see, abuse of church discipline is destructive and harmful. It's destructive and harmful for the individual, for the church, and for the reputation of Christ's name. But the abandonment of biblical church discipline is just as harmful for the individual, for the church, and for the reputation of Christ's name. H.E. Dana, he's a a Christian biblical scholar, he says this, The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, churches were applying discipline in a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disrepute. Today, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to, resp- to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance and place in the church. So the solution to these objections isn't to abandon what the Bible actually says, but rather it's to be faithful to what the Bible actually says. So that's the objections to church discipline. Secondly, I want to look at the biblical grounds 
for church discipline. And all I'm going to do here for this is simply read to you some passages that clearly demonstrate that the local church has been given the responsibility to practice church discipline. Now, I've, uh, Jim already read for us Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and we're going to look at that in a second, but I'm going to pass over that one. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, this is what Paul writes. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who does, did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to, to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And here's the key line. Purge the evil person from among you. Titus 3, 9 to 11. Paul writes this. To Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. Or 1 Timothy 5 19 to 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, that is, as for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Elders also should be disciplined if they are walking in unrepentant sin. See, just these verses, and there's a lot more that I could read off, just these verses demonstrate that we as the church of Jesus Christ have a responsibility to take sin seriously. The church has a responsibility to deal with sin, even when it's the leaders of the church. In fact, in Revelation 2, Jesus' words to the seven churches, it's shocking what he rebukes the church of Thyatira for. In Revelation 2, 19-20, he says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he's commending them for all of these things, right? Their, their love and their faith and their service and their, their patient endurance. But then he says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. I have this against you. You tolerate wickedness. Our culture's number one value is tolerance. And Jesus calls the church to not be tolerant, but to be loving. So all of this, all of this, all of these passages about church discipline is ultimately rooted in the understanding of who God is. God disciplines his children. The Bible makes that very clear. And the fact that God disciplines his children, that is the foundation for what we call biblical church discipline. In Hebrews 12, 4 to 11, the writer of Hebrews says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He's committed to disciplining his children, the ones whom he loves. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now this is important. The writer of Hebrews is using the analogy of an earthly father But you have to understand, he's making an assumption. He's speaking of an earthly, decently good father. And he's saying, this father disciplines his child as it seems best to him for the good of the child. And in light of that, God doesn't just discipline for what seems best. He disciplines always for our good. But if you're here this morning and you haven't had a good father, It is so easy to have a difficulty in grasping the idea that God disciplines his children because your experience growing up was not one of good discipline, but of abuse. And so I want to do everything I can this morning to to help you understand that, that what your father was, God is not. God is not that kind of father. He does discipline, but he disciplines for your good. He disciplines because he loves you. That we, as the writer says, may share his holiness. See, God can discipline his children in many different ways. He does. But one of the ways that God has ordained by which he disciplines is through biblical church discipline. So that's, that's the foundation for church discipline. It's, it's all over the scriptures. Now, thirdly, I want us to ask the what 
of church discipline. What actually is it? Well, the Bible speaks of church discipline in two ways. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. See, discipline and disciple share the same root. In other words, disciples of Jesus are formatively disciplined or formative discipline creates disciples. Formative discipline is the idea of shaping, conforming, instructing. It's positive in nature. It's it's a parent teaching their children certain values and skills. It's instructing their child that as they grow, they mature and they're able to, to function in society and be a blessing to society. See, all forms of teaching is what we would call formative discipline. Right now, I am seeking to shape your thinking by the word of God so that you would be governed by God's word. I am actively, right now, formatively disciplining all of us. See, formative discipline ought to be happening all the time in the Christian life. Parents with their children, older men with younger men, older women with younger women. But there is also what we would call corrective discipline. Formative discipline is fundamentally about instruction. Corrective discipline, though it still requires instruction, is fundamentally about correcting sin in another's life. It's about calling an individual or several people to repentance and following the proper steps when a fellow member refuses to repent. Corrective discipline is the means by which the church will formally disaffirm someone from the membership of the church due to unrepentant sin. See, in other words, we looked at last week what we called biblical church membership. And we defined it as when the church formally affirms an individual as a believer and brings them into the fellowship of the local church. In a sense, we're saying we affirm that you've repented and believed upon Christ. We affirm that you've been baptized. And by the visible evidence that we have, we affirm that Christ has saved you and you're a citizen of his kingdom. You are a representative of Jesus Christ. That is what biblical church membership is. Which means that biblical church discipline is to no longer affirm those truths about someone. Because they are walking contrary to God's ways and are unrepentant. In other words, it's to declare as a church that based upon the evidence, we can no longer affirm that you're a representative of Jesus. You see, church discipline is about correcting sin with the goal of seeing the members of one's church representing Jesus rightly. It's about calling them to live what they claim to believe. So that's what it is. Number four, the how of church discipline. How do you do it? Well, there's two aspects that I want to speak to in regards to the how. The first is the process, and the second is the attitude by which you go about it. First, the process. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. So these are Jesus' words, and this is what Jesus says. 
15 to 20 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why? The whole point that Jesus is establishing here is you are actually, as a brother to another brother or a sister to another sister or a sister to a brother, you are meant to protect the person who has sinned against you. You go to them alone. What happens often in Christian life, in in the world and in our circles, when someone sins against us? We often go to others and tell them, can you believe what they did to me? Jesus is forbidding that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't go tell your pastor. Don't go tell your friend. Go to him. Between you and him alone, you must, your whole aim should be to protect the person who's wronged you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See that? The goal is to gain the person who has wronged you. The goal is to see reconciliation between two individuals. Now that's what we would call stage one of church discipline. If someone sins against you, you go privately and speak to that person. Okay? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, this stage, I think happens quite often in the life of the church. It should happen quite often in the life of the church. And because Christians are spirit-filled people, when they are told that they've wronged another brother, they are quick to apologize. They are quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. And then it's over. Stage one comes to an end. There's no need to move further on. But what if he doesn't listen? This is where stage two comes in, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So at this moment, the person hasn't listened. Now you're gathering two or three witnesses, which is based out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, where Moses says, any person on trial, there must be an establishment of two or three witnesses. Now, you can see how Jesus still wants you to keep it small. You still have to protect this person, even though they're not listening to you. Now, if they listen at this point, then the process is done, and there's reconciliation, and there's restoration. But if he doesn't listen, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's the third stage of church discipline. Joe sins against Bill. Bill, or Joe is unrepentant. Bill's gone and spoken to him. He's taken two or three brothers. He's, they've gone and spoken to him. He's still unrepentant. And so now they bring it to the church, where the, the local church now must figure out the situation and call Bill or Joe, I can't remember who was who, to repentance. So that's the third stage. And Lord willing, he will repent at this point. But if he doesn't, then it's stage four. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's what's Jesus mean by that? That is to treat him as an unbeliever who needs to be saved. Meaning, 
You're removing the individual from membership because membership is for affirmed believers and you're removing him from the Lord's table because the Lord's table is for affirmed Christians. But I want to be clear. Treating him as a tax collector or a Gentile is not an act of shunning. Jesus didn't shun tax collectors or Gentiles. The point is, the church now, in its dealing with this individual, can no longer affirm this person to be a Christian and must then call him to repentance. Now, what Jesus says next in verses 18 to 20 is important because it demonstrates the authority the local church has in regards to removing someone from the membership of the church. Verses 18 and 20, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, he's speaking here to the disciples, but specifically to the church, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That verse is not about prayer meetings. That verse is about church discipline. Jesus here is referring to the keys of the kingdom, which he makes reference to in Matthew 16, 18, 20, in regards to the apostles and being given the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. And these keys in Matthew 18 have also been given to the local church. The local church has been given a weighty authority that shouldn't be taken lightly when practicing discipline. You see, when a church decides it can no longer affirm someone's faith, and I want to be clear, we're not saying that they're absolutely not a Christian. We're simply saying by the evidence we can't affirm it. So when a church decides it can no longer affirm someone's faith and decides to remove someone from membership, the church can have the confidence that they are operating and acting in cooperation and agreement with the Lord. Where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he is among them and is with them in their decision making. The church has been given authority that when exercised rightly, and that's important, it must be exercised rightly. The keys must be exercised rightly. They are in concert with the Lord for what is done on earth will be done in heaven. This is a hugely weighty responsibility that the church must take seriously and practice with trembling and humility. So this is the four-step process of church discipline, but this doesn't mean that we must always follow this process. There are examples in certain circumstances that would require a different approach. For example, Paul instructing Titus about a divisive person, which I read earlier, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Why so harsh, Paul? Because a divisive person can destroy a church in a matter of days. A divisive person is vindictive. They're intentionally trying to cause evil, evil. They're intentionally trying to stir the pot in the life of a church. And that's why Paul describes him as a person who is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13, which I read for us, 
This person who's professing to be a brother and he's sleeping with his father's wife. This is so heinous that Paul acknowledges that not even pagans tolerate such wickedness in verse 1. And then in verse 2, Paul commands the Corinthian believers to remove this person from among them. And in verse 13, he tells them to purge the evil person from among you. Now that sentence is in quotations, and it's because there are nine references in Deuteronomy where God commands Israel to purge the evil from among them. Now here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul doesn't follow the Matthew 18 process. Stage 1, stage 2, stage 3, stage 4. Why? Well, some say because the sin was publicly scandalous. So in order to not bring shame on the name of Christ, they needed to act swiftly. And though protecting the name of Christ is important, that's not why I think Paul acts swiftly in this situation. So why does he not follow Matthew 18? Well, first, the sin is already publicly known by the church. He's writing to the church about it. They already know the situation. See, the first two stages of Matthew 18 are meant to protect the person who has sinned, to keep the matter private. But this situation in Corinth is already public, so Paul doesn't need to command them to go through the first two stages. Secondly, Paul seems to understand that this individual is deliberately living in unrepentant sin. This is important. You don't remove someone from the membership of the church simply because they've done something sinful. You remove someone because they're characteristically, as Jonathan Lehman puts it, characteristically unrepentant in their sin. See, moving forward with excommunication, that is, removing them from the membership and, and not allowing them to take the Lord's Supper, isn't solely based upon how bad a sin is, but rather the overall posture of the individual in regards to their sin and repentance. Lehman says it like this, Excommunication is always about examining the dynamic between the sin and a person's overall posture of repentance. It is not a sin scale that we need. It is a sin versus repentance balance. In other words, there's two kinds of people. There are those who sin, but they are characteristically repentant. And there are those who sin, but are characteristically unrepentant. You don't excommunicate people for sinning. You excommunicate people who make sin a practice in their life and are unrepentant of it. You see, a true sign that someone is a Christian isn't that they don't sin and even at times commit really bad sins, but rather there's repentance over their sin. And in the situation that Paul deals with, this individual not only sinned heinously, he was also unrepentant. And that's why he doesn't follow the Matthew 18 process. So that's, that's some of the process in regards to the how you go about church, the church discipline. But I also want to look at the attitude that we go about church discipline what should our attitude be? What should be our goal in practicing discipline? What should be the attitude of our hearts when we discipline someone in the church? 
The goal should always be to restore the one who has sinned. And Matthew 18 demonstrates this, right? You've gained your brother. The goal should be to gain your brother back. The goal should be to seek reconciliation. The goal is never to shame, but is to seek the good of the person who has sinned. And the attitude of our heart should be one of love and humility. It's out of love for the individual that we call him to repentance. It's out of concern for them. Realizing that we ourselves are susceptible to the same kinds of sins. As Paul says in Galatians 6, 1-2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It should be gentleness. It should be love that drives our practice of church discipline. Never self, self-righteous attitude. Mark Dever states, corrective church discipline is never to be done out of meanness of spirit, but only out of love for the offending party and the members of the church individually and ultimately out of love for God himself. So that's the how of church discipline. Number five, the when of church discipline. When when does a church, when ought we to actually go to the full measure of removing someone from the membership of the church? And it's a valid question. Because every day, each of us struggle with sin. Does that mean that every day we should be doing Matthew 18 on each other, like a karate chop? No, we shouldn't be doing that. Let me give you three words that I think will help us. They they don't cover everything, but I think it, it will help us in thinking through when do you actually remove someone from the membership of a church? Three words. Outward, serious, and unrepentant. Outward, serious, and unrepentant. Outward, meaning we can't judge people's hearts, but the heart usually reveals itself outwardly, which means someone might be feeling pride, but we're not going to judge them because they're feeling, we're not going to discipline them because they're feeling pride. It's not until pride manifests itself, right? Joe could feel bitterness towards Bob, But we can't discipline someone simply for feeling bitter. We can't judge the heart in that way. But if Joe begins to treat Bob disrespectfully or begins gossiping and spreading rumors about him, well, now it's become outward. And depending on the circumstances, the issue might need to be addressed. And if Joe continues to do this despite the fact that the church has called him out on it and he continues to gossip, he continues to treat Bob horrifically, it might be necessary to discipline him. The second word, serious. Now, I realize that the word serious can be very subjective when it comes to sin. Every sin can be serious. But but there has to be a place in the life of a church where we all understand that we struggle with sin and there's grace to be found for us all. In other words, our posture as Christians to one another should not be seeking to find sin in another's life. You should be looking at sin in your own life. 
Our posture should be, love covers a multitude of sins. That should be our attitudes towards sin in one another's lives. See, maybe Joe, in a moment, sorry if your name's Joe, I wasn't thinking of you, but maybe Joe, in a moment of insecurity, tells a lie in order to make himself look better. And I end up noticing that he's lying. Now, there's a place for me to say, hey, Joe, you know, you did this thing and probably shouldn't have done it. But there's also a place for me to say in my heart, you know what, love covers a multitude of sins. And it's not dismissing what he did, but it's truly saying love covers a multitude of sins. And I'm going to look past what Joe did because we're all a work in progress. And I've probably had moments like Joe had. It's not taking sin lightly, but it's deciding to not always have to remove the speck from my brother's eye. But if I start to notice that Joe is making a habit of lying, and he's beginning to live a life of deceit, and and his lies are getting bigger and bigger, so much so that a five-year-old wouldn't believe him anymore, and it's become a regular habit of his, now it's become a more serious matter which means he might need to be confronted by a brother or a sister, especially if he's unrepentant over it. And Lord willing, he repents over it. But you go through the stages to establish, is Joe truly repentant over the fact that he's been lying deceitfully to many people for a very long time? So it's outward, it's serious, and it's also unrepentant. See, the whole process of Matthew 18 isn't just to establish whether or not Joe has sinned. It's to establish whether or not he's repentant over the sin. So for example, Joe commits adultery against his wife, Sally. Like my names, eh? Um, She finds out. So she comes to me and the other elders of our church and she tells us what has happened. And so we meet with Joe and his wife and And if we're able to discern that Joe is truly repentant, we wouldn't excommunicate him, even though he's committed adultery. We would take what he did very seriously, and there would be things that we would expect him to do in light of what he's done. But we wouldn't remove him from membership, because despite the fact that he's committed a serious sin, he has shown a level of repentance. And we would work with him and his wife in seeing their marriage restored, Lord willing. But if Joe commits adultery and says he's leaving his wife for this other woman despite the fact that he's made a covenant with his wife, despite the fact that he's going directly against scripture, despite the fact that we as the elders have called him to repentance by leaving this woman and returning to his wife, if he's unrepentant, if he's refusing to listen to our guidance... We will then begin the process of excommunicating him from the church. Because his sin is outward, it's serious, that is, it's adultery, and he's unrepentant. That's when we would remove someone from membership. Their lives are no longer affirming their profession of faith. That's the point. Brothers and sisters, the scripture has made clear to us that how we live matters to God. In 1 Peter 1, 14-16, Peter writes, As obedient children, it's assumed 
that we ought to be obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As the church, we're representatives of Jesus. And our conduct is to reflect what he is like to the world, which means we have a responsibility to not let sin go unchecked in the lives of his people, in our own lives, but also in the lives of of others. Which leads to my final point, the why of church discipline. Why should we as a local church practice church discipline? Well, the first reason is obvious. God commands it. If we want to be obedient, we're called to practice this in the life of a church. We must not think that we are wiser than God in this area. God has established this as the means by which to restore his children to fellowship. Do not think that you are wiser than God and therefore neglect this teaching. Reason number two, it's actually one of the ways we love one another. God disciplines those he loves. A church that doesn't discipline its members who are in serious, unrepentant sin isn't a church that loves its fellow members but neglects its fellow members. To love someone is to seek their good. And that means sometimes calling people to repentance and even removing them from the church in order that they might see that they are in serious danger of not just being removed from the church, but of facing God's judgment. Church discipline is one of God's ways of waking people up to their sin. A dear brother of mine who's a pastor and... um, His brother, who was married and had three kids, was a member of his church that he was pastoring. And his brother ended up committing adultery. And he he was not listening to the church. He was not listening to his brother, who was the pastor. He was not listening to the elders. He left his wife and three kids for this other woman. But he still claimed to be a Christian. And my friend, who's the pastor, said to me, I'll just give his name, or not his name, I'll make up his name, Tom. Tom said the hardest decision in his life was when he had to go before the church members and to say, we need to remove my brother from the membership of this church. Because he is unrepentant, he's committed adultery, and he refuses to repent and go back to his wife. He said that was the hardest decision in his life. But he chose not to think that he was wiser than God. And six months later, his brother walked into his office and fell on his knees weeping in repentance for what he had done. He left the woman that he was sleeping with. He went back to his wife and their marriage was restored. Church discipline is God's means by which he will restore his true children. Reason number three. For why we ought to do it. For the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin. That's the whole point of 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 about, about actually rebuking elders. 
do not omit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, that is those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So if I sin and I'm unrepentant, the other elders of this church should bring me before you and say, your pastor is unrepentant. Rebuke him in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest, that is the rest of the elders, but also the church, may stand in fear. If elders are not excused for their sin, so members are not excused. We must fear the reality of sin in our lives. Reason number four, for the protection of the church as a whole. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6-7, where Paul is addressing this very sinful issue, he says this to the church in Corinth. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. See, Paul's arguing that a little leaven which represents sin can spread to the whole lump if not cleansed. You see, we are so individualistic in our thinking that, that we think my sin only really affects me and it's, it's me and God. But no, no, your sin, whether it's known or not, affects the health and the well-being of the people of God here at Royal York Baptist Church. My sin affects the people here at Royal York Baptist Church. Unrepentant sin never remains dormant. It will spread and affect the whole body of Christ. Reason number five for why we ought to practice this church discipline for our gospel witness to the world. That might shock you, but the church's fundamental task is to uphold, protect, guard, and proclaim the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. And the way we conduct ourselves will either weaken our witness or commend our witness. We're called to be the light of the world, and we can't be if we neglect taking sin seriously in our midst. The world hates hypocrisy, especially in the church. And when we don't take sin seriously in the church, how dare we ever condemn the sin that's in the world? How can we call the world to repentance if we're not willing to call our own people to repentance? See, practicing church discipline tells the world that we take seriously the words of Jesus. It tells the world world that we take sin seriously, but that there's also mountains of grace for those who will repent and trust in Christ. Reason number six, the final reason, for the glory of God. We glorify God when we reflect him as we ought in our character and in our conduct. And we dishonor God when we live contrary to his ways and we don't take sin as seriously as he does. This is the seventh mark of a Christ-honoring church, biblical church discipline. And my prayer is that we would never have to discipline anyone here at Royal York Baptist Church. But my prayer is also this, that we'd also have the courage and the faithfulness to do so when it's necessary. And friend, if you are right now living in unrepentant sin, repent 
Repent and trust in Christ and don't hide your sin. Seek counsel, seek help from a brother or sister. Let's pray. Father, we, we tremble before your weighty words. We know that you are a holy God and that you take sin seriously, and yet you are also a God abounding in mercy and steadfast love. And Lord, help us as a church to reflect those two truths rightly. That we would not take sin lightly, but that we would also delight in mercy and steadfast love. And we pray this for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.